first, a word from our sponsor, Film Movement Plus, a streaming service for fans of independent and foreign film, delivers a world of award-winning entertainment, including some of the best movies from prestigious festivals around the globe. Among the hundreds of titles waiting for you to discover are acclaimed films you won't find anywhere else, plus newly restored classics and award-winning shorts with new films added every week. Available on all your favorite devices, including Roku, Apple TV, and Amazon Fire, Film Movement Plus is priced at $5.99 a month. But Watch With Jen listeners can get a 14-day free trial, plus 30% off their annual subscription using the promo code GEN30. And starting right now in the streaming service, you can read and watch my in-app film recommendations. It's a diverse and exciting lineup of six titles from around the world that I can't wait for you to discover. Sign up today at filmmovementplus.com. Hey, this is Jen Johans at filmintuition.com and filmintuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen. Returning to the podcast today, we have a fan favorite and one of my besties. That's right. It's our very first guest and my pandemic movie club buddy, the Edgar award-winning author of She Rides Shotgun and Love and Other Wounds, Jordan Harper. A screenwriter and producer of such shows as The Mentalist and Gotham, who also crafted one of the most beautiful pilots for LA Confidential that CBS stupidly did not pick up. Currently, Jordan is back in the writer's room for the third season of the Star series Hightown. Additionally, and goddamned annoyingly, if you ask me, he finished not one but two novels during the pandemic, and they're both excellent. The first, called The Last King of California, is a tough, gritty work, perfect for fans of Shotgun, that will be publishing this year in the UK. And the second, a topical, epic Tinseltown thriller everybody knows, will hit shelves everywhere next year. And I can't wait for you to read it. Jordan, it is so great to have you here once again. You're somebody fans always say I banter with the best, so I can't wait to dive in. But first, how are you doing and what's new? Um, well, first of all, I just I really want to uh, make sure I got the wording of this right, because I might steal this from you. Did you say topical, epic, tinsel town thriller? What was the? A topical, epic Tinseltown thriller. Yeah, I'm, you know, I uh, you got to keep these things uh, for the you know uh, jacket copy and whatnot. Uh, I'm good. I'm good. You know, the the is the pandemic still happening? Oh, is there like you know, a, it's there. Yeah, but like as, as in a, the middle, uh, I don't know. It's it's a phrase I use a lot these days. It's a liminal space. We are <laughs> both in and not in the pandemic, but um. No, I'm, I'm good. It feels good to be in a room again. It's it's uh, television when it's done well and correctly is a very fun job where you just mm-hmm. sit in a room. Well, not virtual in a virtual room uh, yes. with other creative people and you just come up with stuff. And that that is a very nice way to make a living. Um, and so I'm glad to be doing that. And, um, you know, it's a beautiful day in Los Angeles. We are uh, entering year three of the drought. But like, hey, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what are you gonna do? Um, also, it's just like uh, you know, I don't know if I've ever been called a, a fan favorite before. So like, I'm gonna 
you got to put that on the jacket copy as well there just to get a tattoo on like yes my neck that just says fan yeah. i will blurb the hell out of you but i don't oh. think i'm as big as the other people on the book jacket so <laughs> yeah random house or whoever will probably go no yeah I, I, you know, that this, this could be a podcast into itself, but blurbing is such a silly thing. And if they announced that it was dead tomorrow, I think 99% of all authors would, would, would just celebrate um, <laughs> because either you have to approach people um, and get them to blurb your book, which is uh, never feels like a cool thing to do. Like you never no. like, man, um, would you do this for me? And then, or you're, you're on the other end and you're trying to like, what craft these blurbs and, and it's all like being done under this pressure that I, you know, my, I don't know how many people buy books because they see a blurb. And if they do buy a book because of blurb, I don't know how often it's because they recognize the name of the person. And I think that's true. Yeah. It's kind of sound bites and just yeah. a sound. If somebody writes like, you know, gripping, thriller <laughs> and they put that in bold type you barely even notice uh who mm-hmm. is saying it um anyway point being uh you know we'll, we'll get you we'll, we'll, we'll put you on the front it's just fan favorite and people will go. love it yeah indeed. yeah no that's the way it goes hey you're talking to a film critic i'm used to that you know i mean that's true if it's quippy it makes the poster even if it makes no sense for the movie <laughs> yes yeah well, I just love those very telling dot, dot, dots. Like, oh, yeah. Where they've selected pieces from yes. the review. A dot, 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 good dot, dot, dot movie. Is like... yeah. yeah. Those are usually my blurbs. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but, well, when we were scheming to bring Jordan back on, I told him that since I was delving into some heavier terrain this season, it would be nice to just kick back with him and have some fun. Being a good pal, he took my request to heart. And also, since it is us and we talk crime movies all the time, because as Raymond Chandler might say, murder is his business, Jordan combined these two thoughts into one. This leads us to today's inspired topic we're calling Murder Can Be Fun. Taking a look at the film's Death Trap, Clue, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and So I Married an Axe Murder, we're putting on our fedoras, virtually, to investigate crime's creatively comedic side. While we'll go more extensively into each film in just a moment, first, I thought I would ask you to give me your thoughts as both a film fan and a writer on films opting to take either a shockingly pitch black or laugh out loud funny approach to your favorite genre. Do you have any rules of thumb about what works, what doesn't, and where you draw the line? Are you more anything goes? What are you thinking? Oh, well, that's an interesting, you know, this is a a whole genre of crime that is not what I do at all. And yeah. what I think it is, you know, in, in the fiction world, this, these aren't phrases that really work their way into film, but in fiction, there's a, what is considered a pretty hard divide between hard-boiled or noir and what they call cozies. And cozies are, um, you know, a delicious murder or like yeah. uh, cats who solve crimes, uh, mm-hmm. mystery books that have uh, recipes in them and things like that. And what I always find so fascinating is the idea that what I do is considered dark because I treat violence seriously. Yeah. And these things are considered light because they treat death and murder as like a piffle. 
an amusing thing that happens to (laughs) an other, which is, I think, the most important thing about it is that there is always a remove from the viewer and the uh, and the people and the victims. And um, I I I embrace these things. I enjoy these movies, but to me, the attitudes of a lot of these films are, in fact, much darker and much Mm -hmm. weirder than somebody who describes violence in like, um, you know, extreme terms. And by the way, not to, I'm not putting myself on a pedestal because I use violence as a tool of excitement in my work. I absolutely do that. Um, so it's not a moral thing. I just think it's, it's an interesting, uh, thing to look at as like these, the one thing when we were talking about these, these movies, the thing that was important to me, um, is that these were comedies first and foremost, yeah. I mean, death trap, you could discuss whether it's more mm-hmm. of a comedy or more of a thriller. Um, but they're not, you know, there's the whole school of like Beverly Hills cop inspired action comedies where there is both murder and comedy, but that's not what we're talking about because they treat murder more like what I, more in a hard boiled style than in a yeah. cozy style. Um, and so I, I wanted to, us to find movies that had an actual death in them. So I, I, I didn't pitch throw mama from the train because mm-hmm. uh, what you learn at the end of throw mama from the train, spoiler alerts for the, 25 year old movie is that um, <laughs> nobody was actually murdered in that movie. So yeah. it, it has its cake and eats it too um, in a way that none of these movies do. These are all movies where either on or off screen people are murdered and the primary uh, attitude is, is ha ha ha, which mm-hmm. again, I, my, my intro makes it sound like I'm making a moral sense. I'm not, I think that, that this is a fine thing. I just think it's an interesting thing that it is it is so easy to to do this kind of violence and not have it be questioned. And um, that's true. Yeah. I remember years ago seeing like a talk show where they had a shrink on and the shrink was like analyzing uh, murder. She wrote, you know, and on murder, she wrote, I mean, Jessica Fletcher has like a thousand nieces and nephews and mm. everything, you know, it's always a distant relative or somebody in knitting club or whatever. And they're always getting killed and or blamed. And the shrink was like, you know, if this was reality, wouldn't she be the most depressed person on the planet? Because she Mm -hmm. keeps losing, you know, nieces and nephews and cousins. And and it's very funny. So, yeah, that is the difference of the far removed in your books. And you mentioned, of course, um, Beverly Hills Cop, where it's a friend. So there's comedy there, but there is a little more grit and a little more realism. One isn't necessarily better or worse than the other, but it's an interesting uh, difference. For sure. Yeah. And, you know, like another movie that I thought about, which really straddles the line is like Fletch. Uh, oh, yeah. Is, because that is less of an action movie than Beverly Hills Cop. Um, and the thing that is, I find interesting about Fletch is I actually, I'm a huge fan of the Fletch novels, although rereading them as an adult, I realized that they are incredibly, incredibly misogynistic. Like mm-hmm. um, Fletch is a very bad man, um, but, <laughs> uh, but they are great books and, and, but they are not comedies. Fletch is a funny man in a very serious world in the, mm-hmm. uh, in the books. And I think, you know, the movie had to be bent towards Chevy Chase yeah. But at the heart of it, it is still a, a fairly traditional mystery novel with, uh, you know, they leave out the things in the in the book that really uh, temper Fletch, Fletch's character, such as in the book, he is shacked up with a 15 year old girl. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. Who is yeah. a street walking uh, heroin addict that he is living with and sleeping with in, mm-hmm. in while chasing a story. Um, 
and all yeah, of that. that's a barrel of laughs that's yeah a, well they did trim <laughs> that out of the movie but like um but again i felt like these these ones we're going to talk about are a very specific tone um the naked gun would be the other movie oh, we're yeah. not going to talk about that like we sure. definitely could have uh-huh. um where Part two no i'm just kidding <laughs> that's a i think if i recall one and three are good and two is bad yeah. Gun oh no, I meant part two of the podcast. Oh, part two Other of the one. podcast. Yes. Just, yeah. Um, uh, you know what makes those movies very weird now? Is, oh yes, the um, OJ o. Simpson. Yeah. <laughs> the OJ really, of it all really changes the 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 tone of of some yes. of those scenes, especially the one. I think it is three. Uh, no, no, it's the first one where he's creeping around in a black ski mask. Oh um, God. Yeah, and you're like, oh, this is. <laughs> aged this is not aged well it really kind of brings in that darkness that we're that we're talking about but anyway that's that's kind of what i was reaching for was to find these movies that treats death as as a contrivance and a thing to be enjoyed and does not explore any of the questions about uh what it means to die or to commit violence or any of those things and uh and yes. so that that was the goal and so here okay. we are Exactly. Food for thought. Well, Dog Day Afternoon, Serpico, 12 Angry Men, Network, The Verdict, Murder on the Orient Express. When you think of master filmmaker Sidney Lumet's career, the word funny doesn't exactly come leaping to mind. Interested in gritty realism, ensemble dramas that hit hard and focus on social justice concerns. While he did make a couple of movies that could be considered comedies, personally, I feel that if you look closer you'll see that he was a man who knew that life was at its heart filled with absurdity because there's a lot of humor buried deep within the fabric of even some of his toughest stuff. Smart enough to understand that it's probably best not to set jokes up with punchlines, but just keep powering through going along so that when you find something that happens to be funny, you're surprised. His 1982 movie Death Trap is a terrific example of this. Based on the titular play by Ira Levin and adapted for the screen by the playwright and Jay Presson Allen, the film stars Michael Caine as a famous playwright going through a professional slump, disturbed by the fact that his latest work is a Broadway flop and that a play sent to him by student Christopher Reeve is not just good, but ingeniously great. He conspires with his anxious and disapproving but loving wife, Diane Cannon, to invite him to his beautiful, somewhat isolated home, murder him, and produce his play as one of his own to get back on top. Brilliantly incisive, twisty, surprising, and filled with great performances and thrilling one-upmanship between him and Reeve that makes you recall the Kane film Sleuth, which he made twice. I really like this one. So what's your take, Jordan? Yeah, it's it is a it's a great movie. And it was something I have not seen since I was very young. And in, in fact, if we can we're gonna spoil these things, right? Like uh that uh you know, yeah. once it is revealed that uh, Christopher Reeves and Michael Caine, well, Christopher Reeves uh, is in fact not dead and comes back to life in order to uh, frighten Diane uh, Cannon to death. And then uh, Michael Caine and Christopher Reeves share a kiss and and you realize that they are gay lovers. And I am pretty sure that that is the first time I ever saw a man kiss a man was watching Death Trap as a a child. and I don't know, it's just one of those things that but because I grew up in the Ozarks where like we were not taught about these kind of things. I just remember that being a moment of going like, what, what? <laughs> the man kissed the man. Um, 
but no, it, it, it's also, it's a, it's such a well-made uh, play, I assume. And, and, and the movie based off the play of just, it, it, it is meta in a way that is um, very natural and fun and part of the story as opposed to, um, you know, disruptive as the way a lot of meta things can be. It is, it avoids winking a lot, even while it is dealing with like, yes, we are discussing the act two uh, twist at the act two twist of yes. the film. Mm-hmm. There is a lot of that kind of discussion that, that you are watching a play called Death Trap about a play called Death Trap. And, and it is very knowing and, and it is clearly a send up of, um, you know, a, a style of Broadway theater that is completely foreign to me that I know at this era that the, the onstage mystery thriller was a huge thing that I don't think yeah. has a, uh, has really stayed in the public consciousness. I mean, do you know much about it or? I actually worked at a theater here, the Phoenix theater, which uh, our claim to fame for Phoenix theater was it was the first place that Steven Spielberg actually showed a movie when he was a teenager. And it's also the birthplace of Scientology because I think uh, Hubbard like rented it out or something. So every once in a while we would have tours of people show up and want to come and look at the theater. And the hilarious one was that happened one day when I was working and we were putting on a Western musical comedy they came and took pictures with the cast. And it was, it was very crazy. Every season we would do at least one of these murder shows mm-hmm. and they were probably the most popular, like after the musical, we do like a serious um, play, a comedy, a mystery, and then uh, something else. and mysteries were always the biggest hits and it was this type of thing. I I'm pretty sure they did death trap. Not when I was working there, but yeah, I've always loved these uh, type of plays. I've not seen this one on the stage, but I can only imagine that it would be just mesmerizing. We're so lucky to be watching it though with Diane Cannon and Michael Caine and Christopher Reeve. You brought up that it isn't mustache twirling, essentially, like, you know, exactly what you said. The second act twist is in the second act. But I love that you don't exactly know where the next surprise is coming from. Like Mm -hmm. he has a wall of weapons and you're like, which one is going to do what? And the the handcuffs and where are they going to go? And yeah, it's thrilling. No, it is thrilling. And I thought, you know, I think particularly in the first act of it, it you can feel the fact that you are watching a play that has been turned into yes. a movie. Yeah. It has that claustrophobic feeling that a lot of times mm-hmm. um, plays that are turned into movies have. But I also thought the thing that is missing, particularly from the home theater experience, that a lot of times when you talk about converting a play into a film, you talk about, uh, you know, like I said, the claustrophobia, the, the these long scenes that are natural in theater and unnatural a lot of times in, in film. Um, but the other thing that even in a movie theater, seeing a movie in a, in a crowd is not as communal an act as seeing a play in a crowd. Mm-hmm. It just isn't because the communal aspect goes all the way onto the stage. Yeah. And I, I feel like there are, there are moments in this because like you said, the twists are so good and you can feel the audience gasp that must have been so pleasurable uh, yes. to see this on stage and to communally um, experience these twists that again, I think it is even different than being in a, in a crowded movie theater, which is also an amazing communal thing, but like, um, and that to me is the thing that is sometimes missing in some of these scenes is, is it feels a little, and it's a great movie, but I'm just saying it's, it's, you can, you can feel the, the aridness that would be filled by the audience 
reaction to some of these moves. I mean, one thing that we're going to say like four times while we're doing this podcast is what a what a cast. Yes. Like, yeah. What what an amazing Christopher Reeves never been better. He's amazing in this. Yeah. So good. Am I the only person who sometimes hears Kermit the Frog? In I'm going to say Reeves? I have never heard that before. So we're going to go. Yes, Jordan, All you right. are the only one. He's like a very hunky. Um, Kermit very hunky. he's very hunky by the way he's oh like, yes my god this was around the time of uh, Somewhere in Time which mm-hmm. my mom loved that movie oh my god but yeah this is a film though that I had not seen before um, a couple years ago I mm. bought it used I just stumbled on it and I couldn't believe I had missed it and yeah I absolutely loved it I read an interview with Reeve where he blamed the fact that it didn't make as much money as it should have on the fact that time magazine revealed the kiss in uh, like an article. He said, I bet it was, he he put a dollar figure to it. He said, he thinks $10 million would have been um, added to the total of the gross. Uh, Had that not come out, uh, there was, you know, pandemonium in some theaters, uh, people recall like hearing, you know, people yell out, don't do it, Superman and all that stuff. (laughs) And um, so, yeah, that I think the kiss and the fact that it was 1982 and audiences not even in the Ozarks, you know, might not have been ready for that, unfortunately did uh, make it kind of a hidden film all these years, unless you saw it, because I had never really heard of this one. Um, you brought up the aspect of theater versus film. I agree with you because in theater, the actors can feed off of that energy mm-hmm. and then it excites them and you can feel their excitement and it's very palpable. And so it's a little static sometimes when you watch it, uh, in, in movies, but yeah, even just as you were saying, the communal experience was making me miss uh, the theater experience, which is kind of starting to vanish. Yeah, no, mm. it's true. Um, I would say of these four movies that we're talking about, this is the one that has the least cozy, if you will, attitude towards death. It is a, it is a dark movie. Yes, it is. Very um, dark. And nobody weeps, which, again, I think is, a, is an important uh, you know aspect of these films is nobody cries for the dead. Mm-mm. Um, at any stage in this film, uh, there's the amazing, the closest you get almost is the really amazing, uh, Diane Cannon, uh, monologue that she does in an attempt to save Christopher Reeves life. Yes. When she thinks that Michael Caine is about to kill him mm-hmm. and, and she does a, a, a very, uh, I mean, it's all cloaked. She's not saying, please don't murder this man. She's just rapidly pitching an alternative that Christopher yep. Reeves could take that would mean that they wouldn't have to kill him. And uh, that is the closest somebody comes to like being like murder is wrong or like yes. um, um, human life has worth. Um, and, uh, and so that's interesting that um, it sort of breaks the mold of, of these other movies that we're going to talk about where, where death is a much lighter uh, plot contrivance, but um, it's still, it is so plotty and, and fun. And, um, you know, the ability to plot like this is, is, is rapidly a lost art. And, um, and um, it shows that like, there's nothing constraining about it. It it is a freewheeling, like just so fiendishly fun. Oh my God. I can't believe I just said fiendishly fun. Um, Put that on the jacket. You Um, bet. 
Look at you uh, blurbing. Yeah. Look at me blurbing. I don't talk like that. Um, You're, you were a movie critic at one time. So there you go. I was. Yeah. I was. Um, but uh, no, it's, 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 you know, it's just a tremendously fun film and it just clicks. And I do think that it takes maybe one beat too long to get started before Christopher Reeve shows up. Cause once he's I agree in there with you, yeah. Um, it really just, it just goes. And, um, but other than that, um, it is, it is so much fun. Um, Irene Worth is a lot of fun. She's very hammy, but oh God, um, yes, she's like a Columbo character that just kind of stumbles in and, you know, is just the oddest person in the room. And yeah, it's great. Well, and again, as, as, as a, as a function of it, cause it is a, it is a movie that is commenting on the mystery genre yeah, of, and very explicitly, and so there are these meta moments, for instance, when Michael Caine first mentions that he is writing a play based on the psychic who lives next door, you think he's just making that up out of whole cloth. They have not introduced the idea that he yep. actually has a, a next door neighbor who is psychic. So when she walks in, it's almost like he um, conjured her. Yeah. Oh, that's well put. Yeah. Yeah. And and there's a lot of things like that in the movie because it is so well built. It is you know, everything that gets brought up comes back, the Houdini handcuffs and the, you know, all, like you said, the weapons, there's the crossbow that's just sitting there. Yes. Um, it opens on a stage, it ends on a stage. Um, oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so I think, you know, with their, they also has that thing that you see in movies based on plays where suddenly they're just walking in the yard for no reason. And mm-hmm. it's just because they're like, guys, we have to get out of the house. Yes. Because um, this is a get film. Get out of the same goddamn set. Yes. yes. <laughs> um, but like, you know, that's just what happens. It's, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's just a really successful film and it's, it's very fun. Another thing I love about it is just with the cast themselves, the fact that they're well known for this genre too. I mean, Sleuth, which mm-hmm. is a very, um, like, two-hander as well with Michael Caine. He made that film, as I said before, twice. You have Diane Cannon, who is in one of my favorite one of these, which was written by uh, Stephen Sondheim and Anthony Perkins, The Last of Sheila for Herbert mm-hmm. Ross, which is one of my favorite never seen mystery movies. When I was in high school, uh, my English teacher's husband was a young adult mystery novel writer. And he loved my movie reviews because I was always writing about mammoths and stuff that most kids weren't. And he made a list of all of these films that he thought I should watch. And I'd seen most of them, but this, the last of Sheila was the one and Diane Cannon is in it. She's amazing. And it's great seeing her in another one of this genre as far as I'm trying, it's off the top of my head. I can't think if Christopher Reeve was in another crime film, at least of this caliber that felt like a play, but he was in another uh, play turned into a movie that was funny, Noises Off, the right. Peter Bogdanovich, which is, um, you know, it's like a British sex comedy that we see in development as they're doing the play. And, you know, the cast is fighting and who's sleeping together and all of this stuff is unraveling. and oh my God, I think that has Michael Caine in it as well. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Well, there you go. <laughs> there. Full circle. That's what Full we're circle. doing. Full circle. Next up, we have one of my favorite comedies of the 1980s, one that I rented and watched so often as a kid that still, if you turn the sound off, I could probably do every line from memory. 
though never will I be able to do it justice when compared to the staggeringly great cast that is stacked with comedic geniuses like Tim Curry, Eileen Brennan, Madeline Kahn, Christopher Lloyd, Michael McKeon, Martin Mull, and Leslie Ann Warren. Based on the Parker Brothers board game, I am talking, of course, about Clue, the 1985 murder mystery comedy directed by Jonathan Lynn and scripted by Lynn and John Landis, which finds a group of six strangers arriving at a secluded mansion on the East Coast on a dark and stormy night in the early 1950s. Given strange color-based aliases, they're to use instead of their names as the evening continues on following an awkward dinner led by Tim Curry's butler and their mysterious host, Mr. Body, played by Lee Bing. It's revealed all attendees are being blackmailed. When gifts of weapons are entered into the occasion and the lights shut off, the fun begins along with foul play. But that is enough for me, Jordan. Talk to me about Clue. Um, well, I think like you and like the majority of people who are, are, are defenders of this film, uh, I am a person who saw this on VHS over and over and over again. It was yes. uh, I certainly didn't see it in the theater, um, or at least I don't think I did. I and, don't think uh, I did either. And it was a flop in the theater. Yes. Um, and and yet it was a movie that just, yeah, just seized everybody's imagination because I think it does uh, benefit from repeat viewing uh, because there are so many good performances. I mean, great performances. I mean, great performances. And I will say, I do think this is a movie that if you take this cast away, it's not that good a film. Mm-hmm. Um the direction is fine. The, the the script, there's some good jokes as written, but most of the jokes are funny because of the people doing them. Um, yep. You know, uh, Eileen Brennan is so funny in this. Yes. Um, Madeline Kahn is, I mean, you know, she's Madeline Kahn. Um, <laughs> Leslie Ann Warren is great. She's also, uh, forgive me, just like, it's going to be, we're doing movies with, uh, hot redheads and, and old-fashioned low-cut dresses. Oh, my God. She's a knockout in this. Yeah. Yes. Um, and, you know, I mean, they're all amazing. And then uh, Tim Curry is just on another level of insane, insane brilliance. Um, there's yeah. the weird connection to the uh, to the L.A. punk scene with Lee Vane, and, uh, who was in a Penelope Spheris, uh, you know, decline of Western civilization. Um, and then... Um, Jane, uh, I don't know how you say her last name, uh, from the Go-Go's, uh, Wyden. Oh, yeah, she Wyden. has a cameo. She's yes. the singing te- telegram yep. uh, girl. But, like, it's just, it's so much fun to watch. And you just, you you could pick somebody in the background to watch if you want. And you can just watch Madeline Kahn react to other people. Or um, yeah, we haven't even said, I don't think we've, did you say Michael McKean? Because Michael McKean's in this movie. Like, um a murderer's row of comedians like this barely even exist anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, that yeah, Christopher Lloyd is, is probably the fourth or fifth funniest person. In this yeah. Movie. Which is crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And uh, you know, it, it is, uh, it is absolutely a movie that, that treats death as something that happens to, to the, the day players to the point that at the end of the film, there are three murders in short succession. And, it's it's played as a joke that they just walk in and see the dead bodies and then walk to the next room, see the dead body, yeah. walk to the third room, see the dead body, 
and don't even have literally no reaction to it. It is just, they're like, they're so soaked in death. That, At that um, point. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Two uh, corpses. Everything's fine. Yep. And even, uh, yeah. The, even the, you know, so the first person who dies is Mr. Body leaving. Um, mm-hmm. uh, who is a person that I think he's, he's so memorable in this movie. Um, oh, not yeah. that, he, that he is a great actor, but he has a great presence, which is why he's a great rock and roll front man. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I just, but also has the face and hair and mannerisms of a person who should be killed. Um, like the audience is just right <laughs> he has on board. that gangster look. Yes. Yeah. And just yeah, like, like very mean tiny. eyes. Yeah. Um, and uh, straight out of noir. But then the, uh, the next person who dies is the cook mm-hmm. who is given, I think one line of dialogue, which is literally dinner will be ready at seven. Um, Oh, that's a really good point. You know, we do see her with those knives, sharpening the knives. And, you see her yeah. sharpening a knife and she is presented as, as a person with no, there, nothing yeah. is established about her and mm-hmm. she's just killed. Um, yeah, and after the screams with the first couple of murders, it just becomes old hat very quickly, basically. Yes. Yeah. Um, and they, in fact, it goes so far as to engage in like um, some weakened and Bernie style corpse play by the end of the yes, film. some puppetry. Yeah. Yes. And, um, <laughs> and it is all done. I mean, doesn't the... everybody make out with a corpse to Shaboom basically? <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, no, it's just, it's such an interesting, like um, it's such an interesting pose to like, to create a, a, a story where death is the thing that most is, is both very concerning. We must solve this. This must be dealt with. And yet, mm-hmm the idea of death itself is not dealt with at all. It is just a thing that is a marker of this is the thing that will make us care. This is the thing we'll know, but no actual labor of making us care is done whatsoever so that we can just focus on having the, again, it's the, the phrase that I always keep in mind when I talk about these kind of things is like a delicious murder, you know, where people are like, Ooh, I love it. Just like, and it's in the, again, the cozy world, it's often like the sweetest old ladies. Yes. I think this is a, a, genre that probably is in a large part been supplanted by true crime which is Mm. another genre that oftentimes um hollows out death in order to Mm -hmm. um allow the audience to kind of splash around in these pools um it's also gendered by the way and i'm sure there's something about that that i'm not quite clicking on do you know okay. what I mean? I, I, yeah. You know what I yeah, mean? Like, cozies I don't want are act- usually women and, yeah. you know, like cat mysteries or like the bookshop mysteries. Those kind of, yeah, uh, yeah, like Hallmark movies and mysteries uh, adapts these all the time. Yes. But when you're talking about Clue, I mean, I love the wordplay, the double entendres. The script is very funny. They actually were going to go with or they tried to get Anthony Perkins and Stephen Sondheim who wrote um, The Last of Sheila and would do murder mystery, like Mm -hmm. role-playing games and these elaborate things uh, to to write it. And that fell through. And, you know, it is a very verbal script, but it needs these actors to make it sing. Tim Curry, I read, was like the third suggestion for his role. And it's impossible for me to imagine anyone else in the role. The first choice was somebody I'd never heard of who passed away ahead of time. Second choice, I can't remember, but obviously it wasn't 
somebody I'm very familiar with either. I think otherwise it would be on the tip of my tongue. Mm -hmm. But for Tim Curry, I when I watch this, I just think what an amazing gift that this film was to give him that showcase, that last act where he's like, it's a one man show. I mean, you talked about them stepping over corpses. He's running through and reenacting everything that we saw before it and even doing voices and pointing out and there's pratfalls, there's dialogue, there's so much going on. And he's able to just completely run through at a mile a minute. And it makes me mad when I watch this. And then when I think of uh, today's the 30th anniversary of My Cousin Vinny, which was also done by Jonathan wow. Lynn, where Marissa Tomei won the Oscar for comedy. And, you know, everybody was, oh, was that a mistake or she didn't deserve it? You know, people in comedies giving performances on this level definitely deserve it. And I know that this movie was a bomb and it was panned and it, you know, the snob uh, reaction was, oh, it's a board game and, you know, who cares? But looking at it today, it's just, it boggles my mind that Tim Curry wasn't even in the conversation at the end of the year as giving one of the best performances, definitely a best comedic performance of the year it came out. Yeah. Oh, no, you're completely right. It is, it is really the last... I don't know, 10, 15 minutes of the film. It's just a tour de force yeah. of, of him delivering rapid fire dialogue, making everyone around. He does a great uh, impression of uh, Michael McKean. Uh, yes. I had to stop her from screaming. Yes. yes. He does a great impression of, I, uh, of um, Eileen Brennan while also goosing her to make her make the noises that she was making oh, earlier. Yeah. Um, there's a one great shot. I don't know that, because uh, where he runs down the hall and picks up the dagger and yes. he falls into the frame with his it's hand. It's so good. It's such a great shot. And he just mm -hmm. keeps going and going. Mm -hmm. And he is funny and smart. And you're right. It's very physical. His, his Pratt falls with Michael McKean, where he is doing almost judo trips. Yes. Oh my God. I don't know how hard he must have hit the, the ground. I know they teach actors how to fall. Usually I read it was something like go down on your left side or whatever it is, but mm -hmm. he is falling and he it's is falling. Yes. And uh, no, it's great. I love the, um, there are some jokes I really like. I like a lot of the references to like um, communism is, is a great um, motif in the film. Yeah. Yes. Communism was a red herring, but also uh, when, when Tim Curry realizes or reveals why his wife, killed herself and why she was being blackmailed because she had friends who were socialists. socialists. We all make it, mistakes. We yes. all make mistakes and they're just treated like it's the darkest, yeah. darkest thing that you've ever seen. And um, it's uh, no, it, it, there are some really great moments in it. Uh, but most, I mean, my understanding is Madeline Kahn uh, improvised the very famous flames on the side of my face. I had read bit. that too. Yes. And I mean, I think, Tim Curry is brilliant throughout. If you're going to pick one moment of just transcendental, great Madeline Kahn, that's that's the obvious moment. She is mm -hmm. so good. Um, like I said, you know, we're, we're the, the list is so long. Um, Which she and, does with her voice, like you know, her uh, husband should right? be soft and disposable, like yes. Kleenex. Yes. <laughs> um, even like, a, I mean, she, it's very, again, it's a very hammy accent role, much like Death Trap, yeah. but um, Colleen Camp, um, who plays Yvette, was yes. a staple of, of VHS days because she was also in all, almost all of the Police Academy movies. Yeah, and she was in Valley Girl and yeah. 
Yeah, she's I, she's good. Um, it's just I mean, so fun. Martin, Martin Mull um is very funny and gross. As this is War Peacock is one of my favorite <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> moments. Yes, and uh, you know it is. It's more than I think any of the other things we're going to talk about. It's explicitly a parody. I think yes. Death Trap is the thing that it is. It is not a parody mm-hmm. of these movies. It is a. It is a or of these plays, it is a play that is like commenting on itself as Mm -hmm. much as it is a parody. Uh, The next movie that we'll get to is sort of a parody, but something much bigger than that, in my opinion. Um, But this is uh, very explicitly an Agatha Christie, you know, locked room mystery, old house, the butler did it style um, parody. Um, which brings up the other movie that I that belongs in this conversation, but I'm not interested in, in revisiting, which um, is Murder by Death, which yes. it is a movie that you want to talk about. I mean, casts of um, just insane good casts. You have Peter Falk, Alec Guinness, Eileen Brennan again, Peter Sellers, Truman Capote, yeah. David Niven, Maggie Smith, um, Gosh, James Cromwell. I don't even remember him in this. Um, and uh, unfortunately, it's it, because it's the exact same type of film. It is a parody mm-hmm. of these locker room mysteries with the person, um, the uh, person who is so weird that you don't mind watching them die in this movie that's played by Truman Capote. Um, <laughs> and unfortunately, the entire film is just completely marred by um, Peter Sellers doing a really gross racist caricature of uh charlie chan and it is yeah yeah it's it's not good it's not good and and you know they had to have known it at the time i know that like more's changed but um much like breakfast at tiffany's it's just one of those things just like yeah you can't get past it and it's no um, it's really too bad because the it, again, you read that cast and you're like, holy, holy shit. That's a good cast. Uh, you're just like amazed by it. But like, um, this is, this is a parody and it is a movie based on a board game. And the idea that a movie based on a board game would be good mm-hmm. is such a radical idea because the idea back then was closer to, eh, it's based on a board game. Let them do whatever they want. Yeah. Um, Whereas now it would be so micro-focused and managed and controlled um, and there would be more good-looking people in the cast and like there would be less comedians and it would be, it just wouldn't be as insane as, this movie is insane. It's zany. Yeah. Yeah. Like even, I guess you could kind of compare it to Game Night, which I Mm. really get a kick out of, but Game Night is is darker it maybe isn't as i mean they're not doing all the the pratfalls or there's a lot of funny shit in that movie but it's a totally different style of comedy um yeah <laughs> when they're expecting jason bateman's nothing make this about that is a very good movie um oh, it's a great one, one of the very few really good comedies of the last few years that i'm aware of i know um, there's only a few basically um when, when they're treating his bullet wound and she's going to cut the, the bullet out of yes. Jason Bateman. And then she looks at the other side of his arm and goes, oh, it went through. <laughs> it's, it's, there are some very, very, and Jason, Jesse Plemons obviously is hilarious. Oh, he steals that movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yes. But, but yeah. no, it's, it's a great movie, but Clue is just, um, 
I, I, it's hard because like you, I grew up watching this movie. I, I think we, I don't know if we owned it or if we just rented it mm-hmm. constantly. Um, but I, I think I saw this movie, you know, 50 times. I don't know how many times I saw this. I don't movie. know either. I used to rent it all the time before we finally owned it. But a few years ago, it is a staple now. It does get played quite a bit on Turner Classic Movies. And I can't remember when. It, I think it was during the pandemic. It was Michael McKeon uh, said he watched it for the first time. This was on Twitter for a long time. And he said it was a little bit hard to see cast members who were no longer with us. Mm. But he said, I laughed really hard. And he said, it still works. It was so much fun to make. It makes you realize that they're proud of it and glad it works and you know they know how funny it is and the legacy because it has really been reclaimed there's so many of us i think that grew up with this movie uh it's a it's a cult classic and it's one where you kind of want to go back and ask the critics you know like i know it's a board game movie but it's damn funny yes yeah yeah and uh you know i guess you'd have to look at the other movies that were coming out that year and and yeah what what were the comedies that they thought were we're that would be that's another podcast we should do is, the whole year. Yeah. That, that We're is, coming up with ideas. Yes. I like the idea of doing a, a year yeah. as a podcast and 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 picking it and not obvious year, not 1976, you know. Yeah. Um, but that no, it's it is, it's it's very funny. I I can see that the the need of uh you know, this was in the era pre-vulgar auteur. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? That I think. Um, I don't know what the equivalent of film criticism of rockism is, but this was like the pre-rockism world where you're just reflexively going to give a movie like this a bad review. A little bit, um, yep. You know, and I think, also I think probably maybe they didn't realize what an embarrassment of riches that cast was. That like, you know, Christopher probably Lloyd. Probably not at the time. No. At the time. <laughs> they were so contemporary, yeah. Yeah, and, yep. and like, you just think you're going to have Madeline Kahn forever. You know what I yeah. mean? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's and, a good point. Yep. Yeah. And then you yeah. go, no, she didn't get to do that many things. And like, this is, this is one of them and she's really good in it. Um, she what is. is. What are the other, like, cause I know Leslie and Warren from this and the very bad Bruce Willis uh, erotic thriller, Color of Night. You know, what, what are the, what are the other big Leslie and Warren movies? Let's see. Cause she's really good in this. Like, Oh, she's so good. Yeah. The Limey. She's in that. She's oh, in Secretary. She yeah, so she did do some really interesting work later in her career, Secretary in the Limey, right there. Yeah, those are both very Victor Victoria, she yeah. was in. Yep. Yeah. yeah. I mean, really. So oh, she, she was she, also in Twin Falls, Idaho. So she was making some very bold decisions with her career. Yeah. Yeah. I was she in the Limey, she's like not quite the love interest. Is that the character she, she plays? She is the like the mentor or the friend of jenny the daughter and yeah, yeah there is like something going on yeah there. it's not yeah. quite it's not consummated love interest but no. the obvious love yeah. interest function of, of the script yeah yeah very great. much uh, yeah she has a lot of range for sure Let's bring back leslie and warren yes it's interesting also we're talking about tim curry because he auditioned for and did a test for the film we're going to talk about next 
and uh, he was going to play the villain. And he scared the hell out of everybody who watched it, including Spielberg. They thought he was too terrifying and would frighten all the kids. So Tim Curry was way too intense. And they went with his co-star and clue, uh, Christopher Lloyd. So next up, we have one of the boldest and most original animated or make that partially animated movies of the 1980s, a hybrid film noir and Hollywood satire starring Bob Hoskins in a tremendous no-holds-barred performance as a private eye hired to investigate the fidelity of the sexy Rita Hayworth meets Jane Mansfield style animated showgirl wife of a Hollywood studios leading cartoon or tune star after the man Hoskins photographed playing patty cake with Jessica winds up dead the jilted movie star rabbit is erroneously labeled the killer Hoskins and the audience must find out who framed Roger Rabbit a loose adaptation of the 1981 novel who censored Roger Rabbit from screenwriters Jeffrey Price and Peter S. Seaman working for Gary K. Wolf's book. The film directed by Robert Zemeckis co-stars Clues, Christopher Lloyd, along with actors Charles Fleischer, Stubby K. and Joanna Cassidy. One of the most daring films aimed at kids and adults from the era, along with Batman, Dick Tracy, and Edward Scissorhands. This is one of the first films I distinctly recall seeing in the movie theater and it was all anyone talked about at least in my neighborhood for quite a while so I would love to know your experience with who framed Roger Rabbit I mean to me this is a great film Mm -hmm. I think Roger who framed Roger Rabbit is just a great film it is a like you said it is like a technical achievement uh that is unmatched in, in in Hollywood I can't think of anything that gets anywhere close to this kind of blend of animation and, uh, and real action. Um, it is a, again, like I don't want to use the word parody because I think it, tra- it is more than a parody of Chinatown because yeah. if it was a parody of Chinatown, the crime that they would reveal would be a jokey kind of thing. Like, Oh my God, they're going to steal all the ink so they can make these cartoons. It would have been, uh, a comedic thing. Um, and this, what these people did was they took the essential crime of Chinatown, which is the theft of water yes. uh, that allows LA to exist. And they found an actual crime, which is the destruction of the cable cars in Los Angeles mm-hmm. and, and the the building of the freeways, which is a another actual crime that is at the heart of LA because LA is a crime. And um, they, and so they found an actual, like, it, it's it's not quite as juicy as stealing water, but it's an actual thing. It's a thing to talk about that could have almost been the plot of Chinatown, which True. is the the plot to uh, to destroy uh, public transit. So if you remember, there's a there's a shot in Who Framed Roger Rabbit where um, Bob Hoskins is in the cab with Jessica Rabbit and it goes up on its stilts and they wind up on a bridge. Um, because they have to like shorten their, they are like approaching a a bridge rapidly and they have to shorten the, their wheels and all of a sudden they're on a bridge. So that is, um, that bridge is like a three minute walk from here, uh, in in Atwater village, uh, which is Toontown. Um, so that street is Glendale Boulevard, which is, I live half a block from Glendale Boulevard. Now everyone knows and is coming over. I have come on over. I don't care. Uh, (laughs) Come talk about Roger Rabbit with me. Um, So that uh, Glendale Boulevard is extra wide because the cable cars ran through uh, the middle of the street. And 
Atwater Village was known as uh, Toonerville because Mm -hmm. of the cartoon characters who were painted on the sides of the cable cars uh, because there were so many animators who lived in Atwater Village back then. Wow. So where I live now, and now it's just an extra large boulevard with a a big empty space in the middle because there are no cable cars because they were destroyed by this. But to the that runs so deep that the, the this is a gentrified neighborhood now um but um back up through the 90s but all the way back till those days um the main street gang in Atwater Village was called Tuner uh Tunerville Rifa whoa yeah so like this is Toontown uh where I am now and <laughs> and the fact that they were able to 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 take a real crime and make a children's movie out of it and comment on the crime and the, the, the ludicrousness of the freeways, which is a thing that gets brought up in LA confidential. Um, you know, it's that thing of that first freeway from here to Pasadena mm-hmm. um, and, and the beginning of car culture in America. And, and, and again, the, I, there are so many other things to talk about. I don't want to talk about this too long, but I just, that's one of the things. I love about the this history movie. though. My God, I didn't know any of that. So you're oh, the perfect <laughs> person for this. Yes. No, and it's it's uh, so when I say it's it's more than a parody, I I really mean that. I think yeah. that you know Bob Hoskins is a man who could play this role in the non comedic version easily. Yeah. I mean, in fact, that's more what Bob he did. Hoskins, yeah, yeah, he's brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, he's so brilliant in this. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, it, it is a crime story that follows all the beats of like again a Chinatown story. It is. Um, but it doesn't do them cheaply. It doesn't, uh, I mean, there are some weird moments. He puts down his, his whiskey glass and now he can read that he can see the will in the pocket of the newspaper. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, you know, but it all works and it's the meshing of the animation and the real world is, is so joyous and the characters are so joyous. And, you know, now that we live in this age of corporate synergy where seeing multiple cartoon characters from different TV shows wind up in the same project has no uh, thrill to it whatsoever. Mm-hmm. It's so nice to go watch this movie where there's real joy on both the part of the audience and clearly the filmmakers to put Daffy Duck and Donald Duck on stage together. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and exactly. You know, Disney and Warner brothers and my God. Yeah. And, 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 and nobody, yeah. And, you know, they don't make a big deal out of it. There are, you know, when, when Mickey and Bugs Bunny are on screen, they are themselves. The mm-hmm. Dumbo gag is good. Um, but also the characters that they create for the movie are also really good. The baby is hilarious. Baby is the best. Yeah. Biggest scene stealer of the, the animated. I mean, everyone remembers uh, Jessica Rabbit, but the baby is hilarious. I did read that Disney uh, was throwing a little bit of a fit because they wanted their characters in it. I think everybody wanted it in it. Uh, you know, they wanted the, their studio to be represented, but yeah, it is mind blowing when you go back and you realize, wait, who made this movie and they're all in there together. I mean, it's so cool. It won uh, three Oscars, film editing, best sound effects, editing, best visual effects, and also received a special achievement Academy award for the animation direction as well. And very deservedly. I love that. It's not only 
you know, paying off on film noir or even animation, um, the history of animation and tricks. But you also see like with some of the, the setups of chases and things that go down, like they are going back to the beginning of film history. Like this is a movie in love with cinema and taking things from like, you know, Buster Keaton, Charlie Chaplin, different um, people from those, uh, the Keystone Cops mm-hmm. days. And also with Bob Hoskins, you have somebody who's in some of my favorite uh, crime movies, uh, definitely Long Good Friday, Mona Lisa. And just he is probably the last person you would imagine to put in this film, but he couldn't be better. And it's no. so good. Yeah. Yeah, he is he is really the the heart of the film. And, and yeah. the pivot that he makes at the end when he when you have Bob Hoskins do a musical number. Yes. Um, is so it works so well yes. because they build it in, in one of the best exposition scenes that I can think of uh, when he passes out and then the camera just pans through his uh, office and tells his story in reverse uh, through the photos that he has uh, hanged on the walls. Hanged. Um, and uh, there's some great jokes in there. If you notice, there's one of uh, they cleared uh, Goofy of spying charges at yes. one point. Um, which is, um, which is great. And it just pans backward through his life with Dolores and his brother all the way back to the fact that, oh no, they were actually the children of a clown um, <laughs> who toured with the circus. So, oh, he actually has all this in him. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, like a, 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 a mere parody would have landed so hard on the, like it's Toonerville. You know, nobody says it's Toonerville, whatever yeah. his name is in the <laughs> show, movie. Um but it's all there and, and it's um, it is authentically scary. I mean, I will say, I don't know what Tim Curry did, but like Christopher Lloyd is authentically scary. He scared movie. me so bad when I was little. Like I remember I liked it, uh, but it did scare the hell out of me. And that's why I was remembering what other movies kind of scared me around this time. And it was Dick Tracy, mm-hmm. a few things, definitely uh, Jack Nicholson and Batman yep. and some of the imagery and Edward Scissorhands and a couple others. I mean, it's dark. I can't imagine, you know, they really would not make anything like this. I know that's an old cliche. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> they don't make movies like this anymore, but they they really, I mean, this would be a hard PG-13, I think, or a PG-13 today. Yeah. It, yeah, it definitely um, wouldn't go down like this. Uh, and yeah, it's really intense. I hadn't seen it in decades. So this was the first time it made me wish that I had it in Blu-ray to watch like a bunch of special features because I'm dying to see scenes of Bob Hoskins just doing all of this himself uh, opposite air, essentially. I mean, it's just so good. Yeah. I would love to watch and I will, you know, again, talk about formative moments. The uh, Jessica Rabbit musical number is very very hot for a cartoon it Ooh, really yeah, is it, yeah. it is a and the song choice is a little so uncomfortable good. yeah <laughs> um but i would really like to watch that scene because there is a lot going on where she's like walking around and she's like straightening ties and like ruffling coats and like yeah. interacting with the men and so you know it's all filmed on sets they have yeah. that they probably had something physical there again it's so different than a lot of modern film that is just like takes place on a green box Mm-hmm. And they just have a, um, you know, like a, a tennis ball that you're supposed to act with. I'm a, I yeah, don't know for if, eyeline. Yep. Yeah. If Kathleen Turner was on set or not, I don't know. But like, I read it was an uncredited performance too. And it's such a good vocal performance. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, is, is she not credited? She's so good. That's what I read anyway. I mean, I could be wrong. Maybe the fact is wrong, but I did mm. read it was an uncredited. Amy Irving, who was married at the time to Steven Spielberg, uh, did the music or the singing for Jessica Rabbit. Really? She's yeah. fantastic. It's very good. good. Yeah. 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 Um, I'm trying to think if there's, yeah, that's, uh, but I would like to see a lot of the interaction. The footage. Yeah. Yeah, the when he's washing Roger Rabbit in the sink and, and all that. And, um, so funny. Yep. It is interesting and uh, that they never, and I'm sure they tried, or maybe they didn't because people weren't as desperate back then to like make Roger Rabbit a character who would then exist outside of these movies or outside of this movie. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It, they didn't spin him off or anything. Right. Yes. They didn't, they, there's, there wasn't a, then a, just a Robert, Roger Rabbit cartoon. I mean, you can see like the joy like in that it opens with a actual cartoon short between the baby and, and Roger Rabbit. And you can see the joy of the animators mm-hmm. who by that time, that style of animation and that style of storytelling were going out of, um, yeah, out of yeah. style. And it's so much fun. It's again, it, it is it's, to talk about what we're talking about. It is, it is a place where violence is like uh, defanged or hollowed out where it's just hilarious to watch knives being flung at Roger Rabbit, you know, mm-hmm. and like um, it is another place, I guess, where, um, y- y- yeah, like where one can experience violence in just this completely hollowed out and fun way and mm-hmm. just like kind of wallow in that and and not have it come off as nobody talks about those cartoons as being dark, you know, no. they're they are like torturing each other. I and, know. And, um, because I guess in those cases, it, it is a it's a place where death isn't real, like literally like that. Yeah. As they bring up in the movie that until the dip is invented animated characters literally can't die. So Mm -hmm. they are these immortal beings. Um, I love that they don't explain it. They don't explain why there's tunes, what's going on. Were there tunes before? Like none of that is explained. (laughs) Um, And great. Like we don't need a prequel. Um, somebody doesn't walk on and speak an exposition to, right, you know, as, as in you the know. olden days. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, it's just, I really think it's a movie that succeeds on a lot of different levels simultaneously. And um, I, I really, I, cause I hadn't seen it in a, in a long time, but I've always really admired it. And, and it, it's just the, the joy and the, the skill and the, the craft of it. And um the way that like you can see these these characters as oh they are like uh, mythic and it this doesn't feel like a, it doesn't feel like a cash grab that you're putting them all together it feels like a no, celebration it's not that you're space doing jam, it essentially. right yeah it is it is the exact opposite of those moments in space jam where you go oh are they in an austin powers movie like great mm-hmm. um uh you know style- what it's kind of the end of you mentioned that it opens with um, a throwback to those old violent, super violent, you know, animated mm-hmm. uh, shorts. And it's at that time in history where it was either this year or maybe when was Little Mermaid, maybe 89, where it was the new mm. era of animation that we were going to get into. And then that was happening at Disney, the renaissance of animation and musical um, comedies. And then at uh, Warner Brothers, then we started to get all of this IP, the Space Jam stuff where, you know, it was toys at mcdonald's and i'm sure that was going on with this movie but this kind of feels like 
they were just doing an experiment for the love of what we're doing. Like we're Mm -hmm. in it for the passion of animation and, uh, you know, stuff steeped in history and stuff that adults are going to get more than kids. And yeah, it's just extremely freewheeling, a lot of very bold ideas all packed into one thing, kind of the end of it. Yeah. No, you're right. And it, it was made possible by the efforts of very powerful men, Yeah, which, you know, is not the best way that things can occur, but it is better than at the will of the algorithm. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that, that this was Steven Spielberg making these things happen, not, um, yes, the, the weight of IP and an yeah. algorithm showing exactly how we can do one reference for every major demo in the market. Um, kind yeah. of thinking. Um, and I think that really, it comes through and it's, there is a, there is a vast difference between, like I said, I, the scene with Daffy Duck and, and Donald Duck playing piano is an authentically great, like cartoon. Yes. Um, and it's just a little moment that happens in the film, but it's, it feels so special and yeah. Film history. Um, yeah, it yeah. really is. It is, it yeah. is a piece of film history, much more so than the Bugs Bunny, Mickey Mouse cross. Um, I agree. Yeah. The ducks. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, touching about that yeah it's at least partially inspired by the fact that this is not to this isn't important but mickey mouse doesn't really have a character he's kind of the least interesting of the yeah yeah if you had those shorts back in the day i mean you were hoping when they had mickey he'd be partnered with goofy or chippendale or you can do a whole Mm -hmm. spinoff show on just these animated characters but yeah mickey is kind of the least of the interesting uh that characters i, I yeah. guess he really is a walking logo in a lot of ways he is yeah 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 um, as opposed to the, the great bugs bunny um yeah but yeah yep just like the villains steal the roles in in movies with the, the handsome leading men <laughs> you know that's kind of what's going on with uh, mickey mouse basically is what we're true. saying yes I, mean, I do also really like the scene where where they go hide out in a movie theater and roger rabbit thrills to uh to a goofy cartoon and talks about like what a master goofy is at at their art nice it's really it's it's a very nice moment yeah yeah well lastly we have a cult favorite that i probably enjoy way too much moving out of the 1980s and into the early 90s heyday where as in the case of stars like dan Aykroyd and john belushi a decade earlier movies with breakout cast members from snl reign supreme we have director Thomas Schlammy's So I Married an Axe Murderer, starring Mike Myers as a San Francisco witty performance artist and beat poet with a bad track record when it comes to dating and short-lived relationships. Frequently suspicious of the women he's involved with, once the honeymoon phase wears off, Myers gets more than he bargained for this time, however, when he starts dating a beautiful butcher, played by Nancy Travis, and begins to suspect she's the Mrs. X, being described in his Scottish mother, Brenda Fricker's tabloid, who's been knocking off her husband's, co-starring Anthony LaPaglia and Amanda Plummer, and featuring everyone from Phil Hartman to Stephen Wright to Charles Grodin in bit roles, along with Myers doing Eddie Murphy duty, playing another role and bringing the house down in the process. It's hilarious, very bizarre, and compulsively watchable. So what is your take on this one? Um, yeah, it is. It is. I agree with you that it is compulsively watchable. It yeah. is so pleasurable, I think, again, because of the cast. And particularly, I mean, Mike Myers is great. It's, it's a yeah. Mike Myers performance. 
um, particularly the dual role um, with his the father. father. Oh my God. Um, but it's also just that every um, corner of the screen uh, is just filled with incredible talent. Like everywhere mm-hmm. you look, I mean, all the way down, I, Alan Arkin, um, who, if I'm not mistaken, because I looked at the end credits, maybe he's he's listed in the opening credits. Mm-hmm. Um, he is not listed. He's not listed on, on IMDb either, by the way. Mm. Um, it's an uncredited role. Oh, um, my God. Which I have no explanation. He for. is hilarious. Oh my! Hilarious goodness. as the uh, as the well-meaning, ineffectual police chief who who isn't living up to the tropes of the cop show that Anthony Lapaglia desperately wants to live in. Um, mm-hmm. He's fantastic. I mean, Charles Grodin is in one scene or two. Kills. Yes. Kills. Um, yes. Doesn't want his vehicle commandeered. Yeah. Phil Hartman. Everybody I mean, calls me Vicky. Come on. Yes. I mean, the best. The best of all time, uh, Phil yes. Hartman. Um, <laughs> Stephen Wright is insanely so funny good. in his two yeah. minute scene. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a Debbie Mazar shows up for, for one Being moment. electrocuted, yes. yes. Um, <laughs> Amanda Plummer is very, very good in this movie. Yes. Um, I, the, all that being said, I, is it a great movie? No, I don't no, think it's not a, at all. No, it's not a great How movie. How is but he it, living as a beat poet doing like five minutes of comedy, weird, woman 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 poetry and unexplained he has like this amazing house and he's able to like what yeah yeah he's driving around in like an old carmen Ghia through the yes. streets of san francisco i know uh, it is very much a a a, a film of its moment it is mm-hmm. very early 90s from it is. his incredibly floppy hair um his hair is so floppy in this movie mm-hmm. um the treatment of the this was when coffee was becoming cool and so there's like yeah we were getting out of the bar scene and coffee houses in the 90s were yeah yeah gonna become the thing and now free friends yes yes and um and there's like the that great laws song that they use over and over again there she goes oh Um, so good yep and uh a couple other like very like uh felt like they were from michael myers playlist kind of songs that were used um and uh, it's also such a great love letter to San Francisco. Um, it really is. Yeah, it opens on Jack Kerouac Boulevard. Yeah. Even. Yeah. yeah. Um, and this is, I mean, this is a movie, I mean, it's called So I Married an Axe Murderer. And technically three people die in this storyline. Yeah. Um, none of whom ever appear on screen. Um, <laughs> and spoiler alert, but at the end when Amanda Plummer is revealed to be the killer, you are told via spoken word poem that she was very angry, but now she's happy because she's behind bars and that's where she wants to be. Um, there's no consequence for the murders. There's, um, it's really only presented as an impediment to their love life that three Pretty people much. are dead. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which I find very interesting, but um, much like, Nancy I mean, Travis, it, I thought was really delightful and just really sweet. I guess she, it was going to be, or it, Sharon Stone was in the running and she wanted it, but she wanted to play two roles. She wanted to play um, the love interest and also the Amanda Plummer role uh, and kind of pulled double duty sort of the way that Mike Myers was doing. And they thought it would be a distracting gimmick. So then Sharon bailed. And I think somebody was involved with Nancy Travis, who's now her husband. 
And I mean, Nancy was great. I, I read an interview with her where she talks about how working with Mike Myers made her super comfortable on set and taught her how to be funny. And she said it was just such a welcoming environment. And she learned so much, which is interesting because I've heard stories about Mike yes. Myers on this movie and wanting things a certain way and some um, ego and power games maybe with the filmmaker. And yeah, so it was nice that Nancy Travis had a different experience, but we've heard a lot of stories with it, but whatever was going on, the alchemy, it just works like gangbusters. I think, I mean, this is one of those films where you, when you find out somebody else likes it, you just immediately are mm -hmm. excited if you like it too. Like Jordan and I bonded over that. It's like, oh my God, I have a friend who likes this. Yes. <laughs> no, totally. And it, it is, it's a, it's an odd movie. And yeah. um, his, again, he does play a dual role because he also plays his, his Scottish father. And it's a little nod to, I guess, what you would call the totality of the rest of Mike Myers' career. Because mm -hmm. this this is an outlier because there is for the in the main role of, of whatever his character's name is, Charlie, uh, he plays the only like fully formed human being that you've ever seen Mike Myers play. True. Yeah. Um, and, you know, he had just he had done Wayne's World. He had done his Saturday Night Live movies. And clearly this is a personal film and, and heading towards what he would want to do as a as as a creator. Yeah. And it flopped, I believe. Yeah, it was not a hit. This is another one of those cult classics. Basically, it's kind of a recurring theme here uh, for two of these. Yep. Somewhere and then so, yeah. so what you see then is that he, um, you know, he flops in this and then immediately retreats back to what was working. He does Wayne's World 2 and then in short order, mm -hmm. um, which also flops, right? That was financially a flop, wasn't it? So let me see. Wayne's World 2. I actually prefer Wayne's World 2 to the first one. Yeah, I've been meaning to revisit it as an adult because I know that both you and, 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 and our Travis. friend Travis yeah love that movie. Um, I mean, I love the first one, but, uh, you know, he and then it, disappeared. Yeah, What's budget that? was $40 million, uh, $72 million box office. So not as big of a hit, I'm guessing, as the first one. But I actually think it's better. You have Christopher Walken. It's just great. Yeah. <laughs> I do need to revisit. I love the first ones, but I, and I love. I, oh, the I, first one's great too. Yes, and I also over the pandemic because we all had nights like these in the pandemic. I rewatched all three Austin Powers movies, and I will say, the first one is very funny. It is, um, mm -hmm. but you already the uh, the things that I think are you see him so desperate for approval that it becomes the same thing over and over again and very repetitive yeah very repetitive and and, mm -hmm. and and very big and very broad and um he never ever went back to this kind of film he never made again because this does point to like this weird little niche of like well it's an indie romantic comedy but you're playing your weird scottish dad and it's like yes yeah and again, you have Phil Hartman showing up and telling this like horrific story and, and, <laughs> and being so good. At Alcatraz. Yes. yes at Alcatraz. And there's just so much about it that is, again, a very much a product of, of this like kind of, it's not an indie film. It's absolutely no. not. It, but it is so clearly influenced by what was going on uh, in the indie world at this time. And then he just never, ever tried to come back here.
I would be really curious to read the script for this because mm. I read that Mike Myers and the screenwriter had a big argument over who should get credit. So I'm mm. wondering, um, like it was written one way and then uh, Mike Myers did not want the screenwriter to get credit at the end. So I'm wondering how much of like the Scottish father and the, you know, the lines about pissing in the eyeballs that Phil Hartman gives, mm -hmm. which is just so horrific and shocking and funny as hell. Um, I'm wondering if some of those were improvised, come up with by well, Mike Myers. They feel like bits uh, that thing, are just sort of added to a plot and yeah, different little I, moments. I noticed, I mean, particularly in the scene where the, where Mike Myers and Anthony LaPaglia go over to watch the soccer game uh, with yes. his parents. Um, if you watch Anthony LaPaglia throughout that scene, it's not even breaking. He's just openly laughing. Um, yes. yes. And, and it's just Mike Myers doing it. I'm not going to do the Scottish voice, but like the, the, just the riffs on crying himself to sleep on his gigantic pillow or like his head's Huge like Sputnik. Yes. Yeah. Um, and Anthony LaPaglia is just laughing, just like, yeah. Yeah, um, You're and it give feels him a complex, yes. <laughs> but it feels very much like that they just turned the camera on and Mike Myers delivered whatever line was in the script and then mm -hmm. just kept going. And then they used the absolute funniest bets, which are very funny, very funny. Yeah. And uh, yeah, you know, it works. The film, I think of all of these, the even though it's called So I Married an Axe Murderer, the crime subplot is very minor in this. And it's barely a thing. Yeah, it's barely a thing until the last five pages it could have literally been anything else because it's just yeah. about his inability to commit to a woman um, yeah then it becomes a horror spoof sort of yes. at the end but there's still just some really funny stuff like before we get the uh, the thing on the roof and there's a lot of excitement and it plays like the end of a horror movie but you know when he's afraid to be alone with her and he's trying to get the guy in the hotel come in for a nightcap it's yeah. freaking him out oh god yeah very funny <laughs> it is very funny and you're right it's it, it's it's got a lot of different I, I'm sorry, I, just going back to the uh, the idea that he is a spoken word poet which was a thing back then people <laughs> don't know yeah I I might have done a we little spoken word poetry in, uh, in this movie. college. Yes. Wait, that wasn't Carrot Top, was it? Was it? I don't know. No, you you mean the guy who looks who, who does an open poem to the aliens? Who is it not me. Carrot Top? I don't no, think it, it is like Carrot Top. A, okay. um, a Carrot but, uh, Top knockoff, we're gonna say. Yes. Yes. Um, <laughs> he's he's very funny, but like yes. you're right, it is presented as if giving one single two minute poem a night is his like <laughs> job. job. Because <laughs> no other, because there's a, he meets Harriet. He goes to visit her international butcher shop that and she just runs. Works there. He just <laughs> works there for a day. Just offers offhandedly, "Hey, yes. could I work at your butcher shop for the day?" And she's like, "Sure." And uh, it's and hilarious a, too because his dad had been a butcher, and so you're like, when we go over to the parents' house, it's not like they have a ton of money and he has some allowance or something. Yeah. No idea how this guy lives. He could be the serial killer is what we're saying. Yeah. I mean, but you know, you're talking about like, so I guess Harriet runs what appears to be a successful international yeah. butcher shop, but she has a massive lot loft in yes. San Francisco, like giant 20 foot ceilings, open air, like, yeah. Um, and she supports of Atlantic city. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a good bit. <laughs> Um, and Amanda Plummer lives there too. And no, mm -hmm. no reference to her having a job. No. Um, and, uh, 
she's really she is really great. Amanda Plummer is is a a great actress who who never yes. really got to do. She always gets pigeonholed by mm-hmm. um, by her ability to play weird so well. I think. Yeah. Yeah, um, that voice she has is perfect yeah, for it. Yeah, yeah, it really is. But no, it's it's a very fun movie. And, and I do think it points to, you know, probably closer to what Mike Myers wanted his career to be uh, until he realized, and and everybody said, not just this movie, that he is an incredibly difficult, unpleasant man to deal with, mm-hmm. but like um, that he wanted to make things that had kind of an interesting artistic bent to them. Yeah. And then when when the rubber hit the road and it, they were it wasn't successful you went to the marketplace yeah you went to the marketplace and live or die he was only making movies like this from here on out and whether it was great like the first austin powers movie or the love guru and and it wasn't great um, <laughs> i never actually saw the love guru that was you could tell that was very bad from the trailer i don't think i saw it either or if i did maybe i'm blocking it out yes but even by the, the by the third Austin Powers movie, um, there's just such a weird desperation and like a, yeah. letting the budget take over and, and like all these celebrity cameos that to me always again it, it's attract. It's not like this movie where they're baked in and they're playing characters. Yes. Like, and it's you funny know. if you know who they are or not. Yeah, yeah. Regardless, yeah. Charles Grodin not wanting his car to be commandeered is just funny. Very funny. Yeah. Again, I would you can make a comparison between this and Who Framed Roger Rabbit, where again the joke isn't that oh look there's Donald Duck, it's that they wrote an entire cartoon mm-hmm. about Donald Duck and Daffy Duck playing pianos across from each other, and you if you were somebody who for some reason didn't know who those two characters were, it would still be enjoyable. Um, Charles Grodin or Stephen Wright or Alan Arkin uh, or, or Phil Hartman, they're all enjoyable when they pop up. It's not like just Hey, here I am. I'm Phil Hartman. You know me from Saturday Night Live. <laughs> yes. um, whereas by That's Austin Powers three, yep, it's like look, it's literally the joke is it's Tom Cruise. Yeah, and he says the Austin Powers lines, and isn't it funny yeah. that Tom Cruise is saying the Austin Powers lines? Um, and uh, and so again, it's, it's sad because he is, I think, such a massive talent. Yeah. That um, really did make some great stuff, but like you can see here him trying to do something else. And while I think it's, it's a fun film, it, it didn't do what he wanted it to do and it wasn't received the way he wanted to receive. And, and he did not, he just chose not to go down mm-hmm. that path. So yeah, there's some chose a different road. Yeah. Alternate universe where there's a bunch of weird little Mike Myers movies. Um, I kind of wish we could see those. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, I know there are other films we could have tackled for the topic as well, but those are the four that we decided to focus on. I know we mentioned a few along the way, but are there any others off the top of your head you would like to recommend? Well, I mean, I think we we kind of got to those at the top. I do think that like um, Fletch is a movie that has flaws and, and mm-hmm. I, think, I feel like people's appetite for Chevy Chase waxes and wanes. Um but uh, I, I do think that is an interesting movie. And, and the, the thing about Fletch is that it killed those books' abilities to be remade because it is so different than the books because Chevy Chase put such a heavy stamp yeah. on the character and, mm-hmm. and that every like every like three or four years, you read about the next iteration of Fletch that's going to happen. Um, it was going to be uh, – Kevin Smith was going to do it and he was mm-hmm. going to do it with Jason um Sudeikis, right? No, well that was later. He was going to do oh, it with Oh, okay. Yeah. Um oh, my name is Earl Mall. Oh, Jason Lee. 
Jason Lee. He was going to do it with Jason Lee, which, by the oh, way, of all of these. I would have loved to have seen it. Yeah. Of all of the people that were him and Jason Sudeikis and even Chevy Chase, Jason Lee actually is the closest to the flesh of the books. Really? I oh, think. I yeah, think Jason I, the, Lee is great. That would have the, been interesting. The flesh in the books, again, he is a person who sleeps with a 15 year old and but he's also somebody who like buys his dope from corrupt cops and like (laughs) doesn't wear shoes when he goes to his newspaper office and cuts his hair there's like a a moment where he's talking to a a a stylist reporter and she's like who does your hair and he's like i do it's just when a piece sticks up i chop it off like he is very much like and he's also a vietnam vet who like saw heavy combat in vietnam and it's 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 a really cool character that i wish somebody could manage to get out is it actually coming out? They actually yes. finished it. Confess Ooh. Fletch with John Hamm, Marcia Gay Harden, Kyle McLaughlin, John Slattery, and it is Greg Matola. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, it looks like 2022. Um, All right. So we'll see. Yeah. I mean, John Hamm is funny. He could. He I, is very funny. I mean, on Curb, he was really hilarious. Yes. I think, you know, I would like for them, and I, I don't think it will ever happen. I, I imagine this will be a funny version of it, but like the version where Fletch is an actual character, um, would I would love it because there are, I don't know, 12, 15 Fletch books and four or five of them are pretty good. Um, okay, cool. Yeah, um, but I'm trying to think of other things in this this area. There's, uh, it, it's it's been done. Like, it, I think a lot of the other ones tend to be more obvious parodies. Um, uh, of mystery novels and and therefore a little less satisfying than I think these these movies that we're talking about. Um, the Naked Gun is still a funny movie, uh, O.J. Yeah. Simpson or not. Um, and all, even maybe funnier than that is is the TV show uh, Police Squad, which oh uh, yeah yeah the the Naked Gun movies were, were taken from. And mm-hmm. uh, again, like Leslie Nielsen, like Bob Hoskins, is a person that you might have cast in a serious version of it. And I think that is when these kind of things work best as opposed to plucking a like a comedian into the roles. You have somebody mm-hmm. who can just deliver the deadpan lines and, and that's a lot of fun. But again, you know, when I started off and I was talking about the end of the division between what I do and, and what these people do, I, again, I, I want to emphasize, I'm not taking a moral stand oh, no, on this. No. And uh, I do think that, that this is a really fun uh, branch of, of, I do like it when they're comedies as opposed to, I, I'm not a big fan of the, um, comedy tinged crime stories where it's just a little wink i like if you're gonna do it make it funny and, and let's okay. let's go for it but um so like baby driver is like a, no that's that's a film we're not big fans of in, <laughs> in um, the movie club yeah <laughs> yeah and uh yeah no like so uh, yeah these are this is an interesting group of films because they they don't often wind up on lists together i imagine but i did no. want to you know, besides, like you said, we've talked about so many crime movies and you let Sean Cosby do Neon Noir when clearly that should have been mine. And, and uh, <laughs> Sean um, came up with it. But uh-huh. hey, you know what? Part two of Neon Noir hit me up. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. Yeah. No, I'm just kidding, obviously. <laughs> and uh, and uh, yeah, you know, I just thought it would be a, a, a nice I, I was saying, oh, it'd be a nice change of pace. But we did comedies last time we talked too, because we um, well, we did a John Woo in the middle there. Oh, we but, did do a John Woo in the middle. Yeah, okay. yeah. So between Next time, Preston Sturgis, we're gonna go a little bit hardcore. Yes. All right, let's was, do. Yeah. All right, we'll, we'll do my favorite Squib movies next. All right, which is a, <laughs> a thing near and dear to Jordan's heart. Yeah, practical squibs. effects. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. 
<laughs> well, thank you so much for doing this, Jordan. It was a lot you of bet. fun. Me too, man. Uh, always, Jen. Always fun. Yes. I also want to thank everyone for listening, especially my patrons who support the show and help fund my research equipment, film rentals, RSS fees, and more for as little as a dollar per month at the Film Intuition Patreon, which is the home base for the show. Other ways you can support the podcast are by sharing, reviewing, and subscribing to Watch with Jen wherever you get your podcasts, and also checking out the cool merch store hosted and created by our talented logo designer, Kate Gabrielle. You can find the merchandise store, including shirts, tote bags, stickers, and more by visiting filmintuition.com and clicking on the shop link. The show's theme music is solo acoustic guitar by Jason Shaw and is available in the free music archive. You can also reach me or interact with Watch With Jen anytime on Twitter, either at Film Intuition or our Watch With Jen account as well. Well, until next time, please take care and happy movie watching. This is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen.